Imagine for a moment that you are in Judea with Jesus. You're walking with him, you're seeing him teach, you're seeing him perform miracles, and imagine that you had the opportunity to ask him to teach you one thing, just one thing. What would you ask? Well, in many ways, our text before us, this is where the disciples are. They're with Jesus, they're in Judea. But if you were in their shoes, what question would you ask Jesus? I find it interesting, as we just read the text, that keep in mind they were with Jesus, probably the greatest teacher who ever lived. They were with Jesus, who we saw earlier, you see earlier in Luke. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus had an amazing recall of the scriptures. He memorized the scripture. But the disciples did not ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, teach us to teach. They didn't ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, teach us to memorize scripture. They asked him, teach us to pray. This is the only time in any of the four gospels that we have a record of the disciples asking Jesus to teach them anything directly. Obviously, we know Jesus taught a lot. It's throughout the Gospels, but this is the only example here and uh, where they asked Jesus specifically, teach us something. And the disciples knew firsthand that Jesus was a man of prayer. And Jesus's prayer life, as you read the Gospel of Luke, it's a unique focus of Luke. He records many, many, many prayers of Jesus from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end. So we see in Luke 3.21 at Jesus' baptism, when all the peoples were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Jesus would withdraw to desolate places to pray on his own, Luke 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Uh, Jesus prayed before big decisions, Luke 6, 12 through 13. And these days, he went out, see that again, he went out to the mountain to pray and all, all night. He continued in prayer to God. And when they came, he chose and called his disciples. And he chose them from the 12 whom he named apostles. Towards the end of Luke, when Jesus told Peter that he would deny him, he tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. In Luke 24, remember Jesus is on the road, the Emmaus road after his resurrection with the two men. They go to the house and we see Jesus when he was at table with him. He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So from beginning to end, Jesus' life was characterized by prayer. He was a man of prayer. And in Luke 11, 1 through 4, Jesus teaches his pattern for prayer to the disciples. Jesus' pattern for prayer to the disciples. And as we begin reading, we see Luke says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And if, we, if you were reading the Gospel of Luke, this would come as no surprise. Think of the countless times the disciples had already seen Jesus praying. But what Luke records here is the disciples' request for Jesus to teach them to pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. 
And uh, I don't want to disappoint Don because he asked this on Monday. We don't know what John taught his disciples. We just know that John did teach his disciples to pray. And the disciples wanted Jesus to teach them to pray as well. Their request shows us that prayer must be taught. We must learn how to pray. Uh, the disciples weren't asking to learn how to pray because they knew how to pray. And we all know from experience that prayer does not come as naturally as we would like it to. They needed instruction on how to pray. They needed instruction on what to pray. So that's what they asked Jesus. Jesus, teach us to pray. You know, if you think about the religious context that the disciples lived in, in the same context in which Jesus ministered, the request is a bit surprising, isn't it? I mean, after all, they're Israelites. They're members of the covenant people of God. They have the law. They have the Old Testament. But they still needed instruction on how to pray. So their question reveals a lot about their times. They didn't know how to pray. So they come to the one they had watched pray, the one that they had heard pray, and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And their question reveals a, an important reality about being a disciple of Christ. Disciples of Jesus are teachable. They knew what they did not know. Jesus, we don't know how to pray. We see that you do know how to pray, so Jesus, teach us to pray. They were humble. They were teachable. So I ask you, are you teachable? Are you humble? But before we get into Jesus' answer, would you notice that Jesus does not shame them when he asks their question? He's kind. He's gracious to his disciples. His response to them was not, guys, come on. Really? We've been together this long? And you're asking me this? How many, I mean, goodness gracious, how many times have you heard me pray? Seriously. And you're asking this? Teach me to pray? No. We see the kindness of Christ. We see the grace of Christ on display as he responds to his disciples' request, teach us to pray. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with his pattern for prayer. And this is Luke's version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. And you probably noticed as we were reading that Luke's account differs from Matthew's. Matthew's has um, much more, it contains much more, such as the ending uh, Luke just says, and lead us not tempt into temptation, but Matthew says, but also deliver us from evil. So there's much more in Matthew's. But we have to remember Matthew, Matthew's was given in a different setting. We find it within the uh, sweep of the Sermon on the Mount. It was also in a different context. Here in Luke, Jesus is in Judea. So what we find here, there's not a discrepancy between Luke and Matthew, as if Luke's taking out something that Matthew added. It's just another account of Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. And he's giving them a pattern 
not necessarily something that they have to recite over and over and over, as if Jesus is advocating for a rote kind of prayer life, where every time we pray, it must be, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. Jesus is not saying we must pray this every time we pray. We pray. Would it hurt to pray this every now and then? Of course not. Please, please do. Jesus gave it to us. But he's giving them a pattern. And John MacArthur explained it this way. This rich, multifaceted template may be approached in several ways. It unfolds the various relationships between the believer and God, father and child, our father, holy one and worshiper, hallowed be your name, ruler and subject, your kingdom come. So this template, this pattern, is Christ's gift of grace to help us in our prayer lives. And Jesus' pattern is broken up into two sections. The first section addresses God, and the second section addresses man's needs. So prayer begins with God. Prayer is God-centered. It is not man-centered. And Jesus teaches us three truths about God to focus on in our prayers. First, he teaches us that God is Father. God is our Father. This means prayer is intimate. We're not praying to someone who is aloof. We're not going to someone who is distant. He is close. He's our Father. So when we pray, we're going to our Father who is gracious. He's kind. He's loving. He's merciful. And not only that, He wants us to be praying to Him. Well, from the context, who is God the Father of? Is, is Jesus, is He advocating for some sort of universal fatherhood of God? Is this an unlimited fatherhood? Is Jesus, or excuse me, is God the father of everyone? Well, Jesus obviously limits it because he's teaching his disciples. He is teaching those who follow him. He is teaching those who love and obey him. Jesus is teaching those who have been united to him through faith. And because they have been united to him through faith, they have been adopted by God as his children. Therefore, these disciples and us who have placed all our hope in Christ, all of our faith in Christ, we have God as our Father. We've been adopted. One author said that justification is the highest blessing of our salvation. We are righteous before a holy God, but adoption is our highest privilege. Our highest privilege. God is our Father. And before the foundation of the world, God the Father predestined us for adoption through Christ. Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So prayer is possible because God is our Father. Prayer is possible because we have been adopted in Christ. Prayer is one way we exercise, we take advantage of the privilege 
of our adoption as we talk to our Heavenly Father. But not only is God our Father, next Jesus teaches that we are to hallow God's name. Hallowed be your name. And what Jesus is doing is he is providing balance for us in our prayers. By teaching us to hallow God's name in prayer, Jesus is helping us to not abuse the intimacy that we have with the Father. He's helping us to not view prayer in a trite manner. Prayer is wonderful. It is a gift, but it is serious business because it is God-centered first and foremost. Now, unless you just read a lot of Shakespeare or speak in Shakespearean English, um, I doubt you're going around using the word hallowed very much. So what does this word hallowed mean? Well, it means we acknowledge that God, and specifically God's name, is to be set apart from everything else that is created. God's name is to be set above everything that he made. It is to say that God deserves to be honored. He deserves to be respected. He deserves to be glorified. He deserves to be feared, even as our Father. And Jesus is specific here. He says, hallowed be your name. And name, as you well know, in Scripture refers to the totality of who a person is. It is their character. So Jesus is teaching his disciples to honor God as God in their prayers. They are to pray to God as he revealed himself in Scripture. So an implication of this is that if you do not have a biblical understanding of who God is, then you're not really praying. It's not possible. And it's not possible because you are not acknowledging God as he truly is. Not acknowledging God as God. So true prayer is an intimate exchange between a child and their father. And especially guys, this word intimate. I used it at one of the inaugural men's Bible studies and everyone but Don I think laughed at me. Use the word intimate. We don't like it. I understand. But it's a reality. This is intimate. God wants us to pray in an affectionate, emotional kind of way because he is our father. So it's an intimate exchange between a child and their father. And in prayer, God's children pray to their heavenly father. And we acknowledge that our father is who he says he is. So if our Father says He's holy, He's our holy Father. If our Father says He is righteous, He is our righteous Father. If our Father says He is just, then we pray to our just Father. So we see that God is our Father. We see that God is to be honored as God. And next we see your kingdom come. God is our King. We are praying to the sovereign God. We are praying to the God who rules over everything, including us. 
And one pastor said, it is the believer's desire and prayer to see God's kingdom triumphant and his rule manifest on earth. So God is king, and he has a kingdom. But what does it mean to pray for God's kingdom to come? What are we asking for when we ask God, God, may your kingdom come? I think typically we view this phrase as looking forward to the second coming when Christ will establish his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not wrong, but it's an incomplete picture. We, we long for that. Man, I, if Jesus had come back right now, that's A-OK. But it's more than that. We should pray for the second coming. But we also are praying for salvation and sanctification when we pray for God's kingdom to come. All right? So how does God's kingdom advance as we wait for Jesus to come again? Well, really through two ways, and it is salvation and sanctification. When we are initially saved, there is a transfer that happens from one kingdom to another. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Paul in Colossians writes, He has delivered us from the domain, the rule, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when God saved us, when God brought us to himself, he was growing and advancing his kingdom. And God grows his kingdom one soul at a time. Slow, steady progress. So praying for God's kingdom to come means that we are praying that God would save sinners. God, would you be who you are and would you save sinners? But it's also sanctification. Paul is helpful again, Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So God's kingdom is concerned with righteousness. It is concerned with holiness. So as God sanctifies his people, as he grows us in holiness and righteousness, he is advancing the purposes of his kingdom. And praying for God's kingdom to come through salvation, sanctification, and Christ's second coming is only reasonable because God is sovereign. If he's not really the king of the kingdom, why pray at all? He is the king. He is the one who brings people into the kingdom. He is the one who through his Holy Spirit and through his word sanctifies those that he brings into the kingdom. And he is the one who will say to Jesus one day, it's time. And at the second coming, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of man will be together. We will see Christ face to face. We will be like him and we will experience everlasting joy with him. So prayer is focused on God as our holy, sovereign father. And if we're going to apply Jesus' teaching, we first need to know God. True prayer begins with and flows from a true understanding of God. So some of you may need to take the action of correcting your understanding of God for your prayer life to advance. If you're beating yourself up, man, 
struggling in prayer, struggling in prayer. Use Jesus' pattern to examine your own life to see where is my understanding of God? Does my understanding of God agree with God's understanding of God? And if the answer is no, praise God we have revelation to fix it. But being God-centered in our prayers, though, does not mean that God does not care about our needs. And that's what Jesus teaches us in the second section of his pattern for prayer. God cares about our needs. What's wonderful and glorious is he cares about all kinds of needs, not just some needs, not these specific needs you can only bring. God cares about our needs. So verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. So Jesus teaches his disciples to ask their holy sovereign father for their daily bread. So we're praying to our father so we know he's concerned about our needs. He cares about us. He loves us. He is the one who numbers the hairs on our head. For some of us, that might be easier than others. But he does that. He cares. But it's, we're not just praying to our Father who cares. We're praying to our Father who can do something about our needs. Right? He's our sovereign Father. He is the King of the kingdom. So we're not just praying to someone who only cares. We're praying to someone who has immense ability. We're praying to someone who has infinite ability to take care of our needs. We're praying to the sovereign king of the universe. And Christ used the word bread to summarize all of our basic temporal needs. God cares that you need food. God cares that you need help with your job. God cares that you need gas for your car. God cares that you need money to fix your car. God cares about it. And he has the ability to do something. So he says, come to me, pray, talk to me about it. So we know that when our needs are met, it always comes from him. But God is not only concerned with our physical, basic, temporal needs, he's also concerned with our spiritual needs. And we see this first when he says, Jesus says, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So this is relational forgiveness. What we're doing is we are coming to God and we are admitting that our sinful actions have disrupted our communion with God and we need forgiveness. But we've got to be a little careful because without knowing everything that Jesus taught, you could say Jesus is saying that our forgiveness is contingent on forgiving. Right? Look what Luke says, and forgive us our sins for, right? For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So Jesus is teaching his disciples that those who have been forgiven 
will forgive. An unforgiving Christian is simply just doesn't make sense. A bit of an oxymoron, an unforgiving Christian. So when we understand the true heinousness of our sin and the reality that God has forgiven us in Christ, how could we not be forgiving people? So we can pray this because we keep short accounts with others. If someone comes to us and asks for forgiveness, we're going to be like, let me think about it. What you did was pretty bad. I don't know. No. For a Christian, when forgiveness is asked for, you give it. There's not a question about it. And if there's a question about it, check your heart. Check your soul. A Christian will be forgiving. Therefore, when our sin has disrupted our communion with God, we can go to him confident that he will forgive us because of Christ. So we have a spiritual need of forgiveness, but we also have a spiritual need for help because we're weak. And Jesus' pattern for prayer concludes with the phrase, lead us not into temptation. But why would Jesus teach his disciples to ask God to not lead them into temptation? After all, James 1, 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So what is Jesus saying? God, we know God won't lead us in temptation because he doesn't tempt us. So what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that our prayers ought to be marked by a humble sense of weakness. I'm weak. In and of myself, I am very, 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 very weak. And I know that in and of myself, I will lead myself into temptation. No doubt about it. So we come to our Heavenly Father. We come to our Sovereign Father. We come to our Holy Father. And we ask for protection because we are weak. We are asking God to not allow the test and the trials and the afflictions and the sufferings and the troubles of this life to turn into temptations that might overpower us. So that's what it means to not be led into temptation. God, I'm weak. I know my own weakness. I'm probably weaker than I even know. So help me. Help me. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes this second section of Jesus' Jesus' pattern for prayer this way. We are to bring our life in detail to God in prayer. Catch that word, detail. We are to bring our life in detail to God in prayer. God wants to hear about your needs. Think about that. He wants to hear about your needs. You know, yesterday, Victoria got called to a birth, and I was up at the, her shop helping out with some stuff. And one of the children, who will remain nameless, uh, was bouncing on a ball. Some ball up there just kept bouncing, bouncing, bouncing. And they kept going, Dad, 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 Dad. They hadn't had any sugar. I didn't give them any caffeine. I don't, I don't know what was up. Dad, 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 bounce, bounce, bounce. Dad, Dad, Dad. 
in my mind, I'm just like, I really wish you'd be quiet. I'm tired of hearing the word dad. Stop it. Bouncing, dad, 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 dad. You can tell it really got to me. I can't stop the illustration. God doesn't do that. Father, 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 father. God's not like, man, gosh, wish, oh, Ben, go away. No. He's like, all right, I'm listening again. I got you. In detail, the minor things. The minor things. God, I'm hungry and I have a meeting and I can't eat before the meeting. Help me. Right? Food, minor. God, I don't want to get hangry. Help me. God, I have a test. I've studied as well as I can. Help me. Help me to remember. not just the major things God is concerned with. It's everything. The minor, the major, what we might think is inconsequential. God wants to hear about it. Why? He's our Father. Does He want to turn us away? No. He's not. Will He answer the way that we want Him to? I don't know, but He'll answer the way He wants to, and we know that He knows what is best. He knows what our needs actually are. We are to bring our life in detail to God in prayer. And Jesus' pattern for prayer is God-centered. And as our prayers are God-centered, we are prepared to humbly bring our needs before our Holy Sovereign Father. One thing I find so refreshing about Jesus' teaching here is that he's not beating his disciples up. Goodness knows we do that ourselves enough when it comes to prayer to ourselves. So Jesus is not standing over his disciples telling them that they shouldn't have to ask him to learn how to pray. And I feel pretty confident in saying that I don't think I'm going out on a limb by saying that many of us here this morning are probably not happy with our prayer lives. I'm not. And if, you, and if you are, come talk to me so I can learn your secret. But Jesus is refreshing. He doesn't berate them. He just says, here. Here's how I can help you. Here's a template for prayer. So Jesus' pattern for prayer is for our good. Jesus' pattern for prayer is meant to help us. Just think about this. Jesus, the best prayer, if that's even a word, prayer, the world has ever seen, just taught us to pray. Right here in his word. It's right here. I don't need Don Whitney to learn how to pray. I'm grateful for Don Whitney and that nice beard. But I don't need it. I have Jesus' words right here. 
And for many of us, prayer, it's stale. It's stagnant. We may not want it to be that way. But when we think about it, that our, our prayers start by being God-centered, and God has given us a whole book that's about himself, our prayer lives can be continually fresh because we have the Bible. So we can pray the Bible. Go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And just start. God, I thank you. I have a shepherd. You're my shepherd. And because you're my shepherd, I won't want. Father, my children don't have a shepherd. Save them. Bring them to yourself so that they're not, a, they're not lost in this world. And you go on. So Jesus has given us his pattern for prayer. And may we praise him for it, but above all, may we pray.